First of all, I just want to thank you all for coming for this brunch uh, for the new school. Uh, to thank Libby Weathers for doing such a great job bringing us all together. Um, to thank uh, Eric Carpeles and Mike Sell for hosting us here. Um, I just want to say a word about our host. Some of you know. Uh, Eric and Mike moved out here from the East Coast about three years ago, was it? Five. My goodness. And they became neighbors. We're, our house is, is just two blocks away. Um, and um, rarely has uh, Bolinas been as gifted by the arrival of two people as we have been by Eric and Mike. Uh, they are both uh, extraordinary painters. Uh, Mike has a show at the Bolinas Museum now, which two, two curators of the museum uh, regard as the best show in the history of the Bolinas Museum, which is a 20-year history. Uh, it's an astonishing show. It's really stunning, absolutely stunning. Eric is an equally gifted painter, uh, among whose many accomplishments was uh, an HIV-AIDS chapel in New York City. Eric's artwork is extraordinary. He's also the author of an amazing book called Paintings in Proust, uh, about the paintings that Marcel Proust drew on in his work, um, among other things that he's written. And Eric is also uh, a member of the Commonwealth Board of Directors and uh, a, a co-facilitator with me of conversations at the new school and has done a set of astonishing conversations, uh, including uh, one with W.S. Merwin, the poet laureate, one with Anna DeVere Smith, and an incredible uh, group reading of Walt Whitman. Uh, Walt Whitman? Do I have that right or wrong? Was it Whitman? Yeah, Whitman. Forgive my memory. You know, 69, I make these mistakes, but I try to catch them. Um, an incredible group uh, reading of, uh, of, uh, of Whitman, uh, where we had the whole town participating. It was just a, a completely amazing event. So for them to host this gathering in this beautiful home is uh, one more act of their generosity to the community. So I want to thank them both. Um, I won't introduce uh, many people except one. I want to express my gratitude to Susan Braun, my partner in leading Commonweal as our executive director. Those of you who don't know Susan, she's been here now for three years. Uh, Commonweal is in better shape than it's ever been, and it is in uh, very, very large uh, 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 respect the result of her extraordinary leadership. So thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm going to give Paul Hawken a full introduction at the talk, and I won't do that now. Oh, good. <laughs> but I. Uh, <laughs> I will say just a little bit about this friend of, uh, of decades, uh, of 
personal friend of mine and friend of Commonweal. And I was thinking today, I can say this here, but I can't say it in the larger group because it would confuse too many people, and it may confuse some people here too, but I'll take that chance. But there's an old uh, uh, Sufi view that some of the Sufi masters were able to see around corners and through walls. And uh, it's also true that in the history of, uh, of, uh, of humanity, that there have been visionary thinkers who are able to capture the zeitgeist, the spirit of any particular time, but also with extraordinary perception to see what's coming. And um, Paul Hawken is one of those people who not only captures the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, but he also has an extraordinary capacity to see what is coming. And uh, I have benefited so much from his work. Uh, his most recent book, uh, Blessed Unrest, which you have in front of you as a gift, uh, is, to my mind, my favorite example of this capacity. That uh, The subtitle is How the Largest Social Movement in History is restoring grace, justice, and beauty to the world. And he also talks about and why no one saw it coming. And it's an incredibly beautiful understanding that no one saw it coming because its structure is unlike any other social movement in history. It has none of the organizing processes, none of the top-down organization. And Paul rightly likens it to a planetary immune system where these organizations just gather where there are wounds to the body politic and the global politic to do this work. And because they are community-based organizations for the most part, they tend not to be extreme. They tend to work on the problems in their community in a way that brings people together rather than pulling them apart. So I think this gift of ours and Paul's uh, to you uh, is just an exquisite uh, expression of his um, vision. So um, with that, Paul, I turn it over to you for some remarks, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thanks. I, I want to say two things about Michael. One is that um, it, it's such an honor to be invited here to be with you and to be with the New School this afternoon. But I also want to ask you a question. Is there anyone here who can say no to Michael? <laughs> okay, there's one. <laughs> Makes my point. <laughs> um, and why, why do I say that? And, and you know, what do we say yes to? What do we say no to? And we, we make these binary decisions all day long. And we move towards spaciousness and um, vision and kindness and generosity. And we move away from those things that are antithetical to life. You know? And I just want to honor not only Michael, but all of you for supporting Commonweal, its vision, the diversity of the... Of the um, 
programs too, which is kind of a no-no in the, you know, in the foundation world or in the NGO world. It's like focus, 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 you know. And, and if you look out the window, you don't see focus. Uh, <laughs> um, you see interconnection. And so I, I just really want to uh, say how much uh, that means, not to, only to me, but I think to others, because it's difficult to swim upstream. It's difficult to go against the grain of, of the uh, philanthropic world, you know, which, um, and Conwell has done it so exquisitely, and it's due to people like you. Without you, it wouldn't, that wouldn't be so. So it's not just Michael, you know, or Susan, it's, it's Olivia, it's, it's, it's all of you, so I just want to honor that. Um, the, I mentioned to several of you, the talk I'm going to give this afternoon is completely different than this. And this is a shorter talk, but it's really about um, a kind of mesh into Commonwealth's <clears throat> um, um, uh, uh, goals with respect to um, toxicity, environmental health, and in that area. And um, specifically, it's about technology. And uh, as some of you know, uh, I started a solar company three years ago with Janine Benyus, who is the... Um, coiner the term biomimicry and the author of the book by the same name. And my other partner is John Warner, who coined the term green chemistry and co-authored a book of the same name with Paul Anastas, who is now at the EPA. And our uh, coming together was really to look at technology in a new way, to solve problems. Technology solves problems. Oftentimes it creates them too, and it solves another problem. And when it's not well thought out, but, but in all cases, technology sets out to solve a problem, whether it's a perceived problem or an anticipated one or one that didn't, doesn't even exist in the case of some drugs. But the, uh, we started out because we felt that there was an unaddressed need, and that was for electricity for poor people who would never be on a grid. And, and pretty simple, which is how to make electricity accessible to the one and a half billion people uh, for whom it is either an impossibility or uh, uh, extraordinarily uh, expensive proposition, or for whom the substitute is kerosene, uh, you know, for lighting, which causes all sorts of problems in terms of burns and fires and inhalation and, and pulmonary problems or an expense, uh, or not being able to read or work at night. And, you know, the, the, and it, 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 I've always felt that we we misunderstand poverty in so many ways, but the most basic understanding is that no one who's poor wants to be poor. <laughs> and what they need is in tools, and, you know, and, and they will take care of the rest themselves if they have the tools, and if they don't, then it makes it very difficult. And one of the tools they need is electricity. One of the tools they need is clean water, you know, and, and, and others. But so we were just focusing on that, and so we set about trying to reinvent solar. Why solar? Solar uh, is ubiquitous. It's growing like a weed. Um, the Chinese have crushed the prices. You know why? Why do it? And the reason is because solar, as it's presently constituted, actually emerged from Bell Labs in 1954 for satellites. In other words, it came out of the semiconductor industry. And the silicon panel is still basically a semiconductor, curved very small, you know, very narrowly, you know, and, and so forth, and set up. And it's a, it's a 
silicon is a great semiconductor, perfect for PNN junctions, perfect for solar, except the um, the toxicity, the, 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 the burden of solar is extraordinary. It is the most toxic technology in the world, except for a nuclear meltdown. Okay. And I, I have a list I can read it off to you. It just goes on and on and on and on. The gases themselves that are used to clean the sintering ovens for semiconductor are 7,000 to 25,000 times more powerful than CO2 and escape regularly. So if a quarter ounce of, the, of these gases is, is escape, then is completely mitigated any possible advantage that solar panel would have done in terms of, of decarbonization. In other words, it's a net contributor to greenhouse gases or, or, or global warming. Why these facts and many others are unknown, I don't know. That's not why we went into business. We went into business to, to provide cheap, affordable, accessible, non-toxic power that could be made in situ. In other words, in that country or region as opposed to being made someplace else in the world and shipped in, in containers. And um, so what we've designed, and the, I, I was going to bring one and I didn't, and so I was just t- showing Ali the only thing I have to show you is, uh, I'll pass it around. Don't, please don't look at all my other photos. <laughs> <laughs> That's Janine, and, and she is in st- Janine Benyus, who's standing in front of the panel. The panel weighs four pounds. Uh, 90% of it is recycled plastic to begin with, so it's 90% recycled mass. Uh, it's 100% recyclable. Um, it uh, is a square meter, 75 watts, which is low. Okay, seven and a half percent. The company's called One Sun. A One Sun, by the way, is a square meter uh, at when the sun is 90 degrees overhead. That's a One Sun, and that's a thousand watts. I don't know how that turned out so well in the metric system, but it did. And um, so when you, when someone says, you know, it's a 14 percent efficiency, that means in a, in, if it's a square meter, it'll be 140 watts. Right? So you can just do that calculation in your head very simply, and. Um, uh, it uh, is, unlike solar, which is made in inert gases and vacuums, uh, it is made uh, in ambient uh, conditions. It could be made in this room, a long room, but nevertheless, in this, in, in, in this temperature. It's made in open air. It's made with aqueous coatings. Um, and you can make it 50 feet per minute, so you can make one of those every four seconds. Right? So just and the, the dwell time for most solar is between t- 2 and 10 hours one panel. Big factories moving through, but it's two to ten hours. So this is one every four seconds. So, and the price, the cost to make it right now is uh, $18 a panel. It, it, and it varies. It goes up and down according to how we tweak the technology. It's in prototype. We could still fail. I want to make that really clear. But if we fail as a company, what I want to say is the technology has been validated. Though. In other words, it exists and it will come to be. And there's no question about that. But humans are frail, and so who knows? Sometimes first in doesn't succeed. But the technology is baked now. And um, and just as importantly, uh, there's a concept that is not well understood about solar energy, which is that it's not renewable. And, And why do I say that? 
to make solar the way it, it, it exists right now, you have to use high-intensity energy. And you have to use, in China, coal. It's coal power. And a lot of it. I mean, not just some. Not like for the lights. And you heat the silicon to 2,000 degrees, you know, centigrade in the ovens, right? The aluminum, of course, you know, the tempered flow glass. Thanks so much. Um, uh, and so the energy return on that panel, in other words, all the, you know, BTU or watts or however you want to measure the energy, the energy out is about five to one. So for every unit you put in, you get five out. You get a net of four, okay? Now do the math with me for a minute. So now let's start with a coal-fired plant. And now it's got, you just created 100 units. It can be, again, BTUs, whatever unit you want to measure energy in. Because energy is just work, okay? It's just a measure of work. And you send it on the power lines in China, and you get about 30, 35% of that energy to the socket or to the panel or to the building. From there, you take the energy and you're using, if you're a great factory, maybe ECM motors, but motor, whatever things, or heaters or ovens and so forth, and you're getting another 50% reduction in actually the amount of power, the efficiency of the power that's being used. So now you're down, let's say, down 70, let's say 20%, okay? So now from 100 units, you've got 20 units going to the sink. This thing is going to produce 100 units, right? Five to one. So what you're doing is you're taking coal or natural gas and you're putting it into a new low-intensity generator, right? 12 watts, 24 watts. I mean, this is low-intensity, right? And then over 20, 25 years, it's going to return the same amount of energy that actually started with at the coal plant. So what solar is right now is extendable energy. It's taking that energy and extending it out. But why I say it's not renewable is because you can't take the solar panels and make a solar panel. Because you can't create high-intensity energy out of a solar panel without a net loss of energy. So that's the, you know, unspoken. <laughs> we found all about this being in the business. That's not why we went into the business. But the interesting point there is Eroy. Energy return on energy invested, five to one. And this is a crisis we have to talk about as a civilization because it is just plummeting. Oil was 100 to one. It's about 13 to 17 to one now, depending on where. Some of it's nine to one. Athabasca tar sands, two and a half to one on a good day. Maybe, 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 if you don't talk, talk about the biggest toxic lakes in the world, right? And, and how to mitigate that. You know, bioethanol made from corn, one and a half to one, one to one. I mean, it's, it's, it's an absurdity. If you, again, you're not counting the destruction of the soil, the decarbonization of soil, the, 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 the loss of aquifer, because it's tremendous water used to make bioethanol. Uh, solar's five to one. Hunting gathering societies, 10 to one. <laughs> Here in the Northwest, in the Miwok and all the way up, so forth, Oh man, they had better than 10 to 1. You know, salmon came in, they had to walk on them, you know, took them out, dried them, and ate all winter. You know, I mean, it was not hard to live. And that's why great sculpture, great art, great basket, great ritual, great cosmology, because they had surplus energy. Surplus energy is the feedstock of civilization, without which there is no such thing.
And the first tranche really was the agricultural age, which produced cities, surplus energy, right? More than hunting gathering. So cities arose, and city states, and religions, and harkies, and warlords, and crazy people, but it, it was all because of surplus energy. So we are going the opposite direction, and then we're holding out things like solar saying, I, oh, it's the future. Five to one, it's not the future. Can't be. So our energy return, our energy invested, is 200 to one on those panels. But what I'm, I'm not bragging on us, I'm talking about what, why? Why? Because of green chemistry, because of biomimicry. And, and, and what's important here is not whether we fail or succeed. What's important here is the thinking that informs it. This is what I want to get to. And what, what struck me when I, and Ellie and I were talking about this, when I first started getting involved with John uh, Warner, who is one of the you know, creators of green chemistry, is that what I, when I define green chemistry, you know, in layperson's terms, I don't talk about, you know, non-covalent derivatization and all that sort of stuff. What I say is, it's putting molecules together that want to be together. It's almost anthropomorphizing. You know, John sometimes talks about being a molecular psychologist, <laughs> saying, what do you want to do? <laughs> talk to me. <laughs> he can hear it. And, um, uh, but, and it sounds kind of far out, but it shouldn't be because that's how you're made, how it's everything we see out there in the living world is made as green chemistry. In other words, it's made at ambient temperature, right? There's no force, there's no heat, there's no vacuum, there's no heavy metal catalyst, there's no butyls, right? It self-assembles, right? With very, very low inputs. So when we say we have a 201 return, when we say all these things, it's actually we're just, we're just saying... Thanks. We'll take a cue from you. So low input, and he, and and I don't want to get too thermodynamic on it, on you, but but if you think back to what I t- was saying about the original Bell Lab model of a solar panel, I mean this is high input. If it's got a five to one in return, these things are cranking on energy. That's no no question about that. Five to one. It means a lot of energy is going in. If they're made in a vacuum, if they're made under presence of near gases, that means they're designed to function at a high energetic state. High energetic state. So what happens if you stick a paper clip into the DuPont sealant on your solar panel, it's gone. As soon as air and water get in there, it's gone. Because it oxidizes. It'll light up. It'll just burn. Because it's such a high energetic state, all you need is an oxidant. Boom. It'll light up. And it's irreparable. I mean, even if it doesn't burn, it's irreparable. You can't, there's nobody in the world that can fix it. It's gone. So what we did is design something that's made at a, it, it's optimal at a low energetic state. We're making it at room temperature. You know, we have dryers to, to pull the water out of the coatings, but it's a low energetic state. So you can go up to our panel and go shoot a hole through it, you know, and it'll just keep working. And air can get in, ants can get in, water can get in, it's fine, it'll just keep going. You can repair it with bubble gum or duct tape, right? Which is kind of like your body. It's an amazing number of things that go wrong with your body and you'll keep going, right? Because it's got so much redundancy, right? And that's what organisms do over a long period of time or they wouldn't be here, <laughs> right? That's evolution. So again, what came to me was 
about chemistry was that chemistry, virtually everything in the chemical world that we take for granted, uh, is made violently. Let's put away the word toxic for a minute. Let's just talk about violence. Because tremendous heat, you know, I mean, pesticides are made by, you know, in a vacuum, you stick in some, you know, chloramine, some hydrogen, oxygen, you know, something else, you know, and, you know, then you pull everything out and see what it does. Yeah, that's how pesticides were invented. It weren't like, oh, I have an idea. And they said, what does this do? I don't know. Taste it. Smell it. Put it on this. You know, what happens to bacteria? What happens? And then out of that comes, oh, man, this thing is a, this thing is a killer, right? Oh, I got a hormone. <laughs> Whatever, you know. But it's a, it's a stochastic process. It's not actually very well thought out in the beginning. It's more thought out now. But the fact is, it's tremendously violent. So you're creating molecular compounds that could never be created by, in the natural world. And then we wonder, we wonder, so, well, why is it toxic? What's the problem here? The problem is that life never encountered it before. That's the problem. And so it's very confusing, which is, it's ingested, inhaled, you know, absorbed. It's like, hmm, what is it? It's in my blood. Does it go to the brain? Is it a neurotransmitter? Maybe it's a hormone. Maybe, I don't know. So organisms are very confused by it. Confusion is toxicity. Really. The cells are confused. So they do something they shouldn't do, or wouldn't do. So, if you think about chemistry that way, which I do, of course, and uh, then you say, well, wait a minute, what about agriculture? Just as violent, right? How we farm actually is forceful. It is forcing the soil, right, with high inputs to do what we want in terms of monoculture. How do we educate our children? It's violent. We're forcing our children and their brains and their imagination and their creativity and trying to channel them into an economically and socially correct, by whose measure, by the way, place. How do we treat women in the world? It's violent. Right? How do we treat our forests? It's violent. How do we treat our oceans? It's violent. So, if you look at this culture, and I'm not testisking, I'm just saying is everything we do is violent. It's not like Iraq and Iran and NFL football. Or Trayvon Martin, or whatever. The whole darn thing is violent. So when we talk about green chemistry and biomimicry, we're not just talking about, oh, well, we'll remove, you know, we're talking about a phthalate, or we'll change this out, or now it won't be so toxic, or maybe we'll remove this and make it better, and you know, it'll degrade or something else. We're really talking about how can we create a world that is a technological world that is nonviolent, that doesn't have second and third order effects that are malefic, but whose second and third order effects are benefic. That's the shift. That's the change. And that's what we're talking about. So, from my point of view, and Janine's as well, and John's, the point about one son is like, yes, we hope we can be successful. Yes, we hope we can sell, you know, solar panel for $25, you know. 
yes, we hope that it has turned. Yes, all that sort of stuff. But what our what our, our deepest aspiration is to demonstrate that thinking about our relationship to, if you will, the molecular world and to how we make things, you know, can change. It needs to change radically, radically. And that rather than seeing mm, the constraints that we need to place on industry and manufacturing and pollution as constraints, it has limits that therefore, you know, foreclose our options going forward, what they do in fact is open up possibilities that are much vaster than the very narrow and, and, and really uh, uh, horrifying consequences of a violent technology. They're all violent. It's happened, you know, age of enlightenment, whatever. <laughs> you know? I mean, no blame, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to point fingers here. I'm just saying, but I think we have in these, these people, these ma- amazing thinkers, you know, like signals, you know, um, uh, that are kind of saying, I think it's this way, <laughs> you know, right? And this way, the thing about one son is that it's just cheaper, easier to make. 100% recyclable. You know, it's just, it's better. <laughs> the fact that it's non-toxic is, oh yeah, by the way, it's non-toxic. You know? As opposed to, well, let's try to eliminate the toxicity. Because if you eliminate the toxicity, it's like, it's the wrong, it's actually the wrong way to go. Because the thinking is always going to create the toxicity. It's going to come out in some other way. Because the thinking hasn't changed. You know, the mindset, how we see our relationship to the living world hasn't changed, you know. We still think it's Promethean. We still think it's man over. We still think, I use man purposely as a gender. We still think it's about forcing things to do what we want instead of listening to the natural world, listening to the world and saying, what is it telling us that we need to do? And it's not about going backwards, you know. It's about really going forwards in an entirely new way. So, and... Um, th- th- there's a couple, there's a, uh, Jeannie and John have a, have a whole list of things we want to do besides solar. In fact, I'm going to start some of them now, but in this year. But, and I'll give you an example of one thing, because when Ali and I were talking about it, I said, we don't want to just eliminate toxicity. We want to create t- technologies that sequester toxicity. In other words, that actually do the opposite, which is to take the, if you will, not the, the Earth's body burden, right? And bring it back, because if again, if you look at nature, you look at those blossoms, those cherry blossoms, where are they? Quince. Um, if you look at those blossoms, you look at the, the 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 yourselves. You look at organisms. The one thing they have in common is that they're concentrators. They're concentrators. They concentrate nutrients <laughs> and do amazing things with their you know, RNA and DNA and express it in all sorts of ways, but basically organisms all do the same thing. So what we want to do is create concentrating technologies that are benefic to the world. And so if you think of solar, solar is a concentrator. It concentrates, you know, 
photons, you know, in, in, into electrons, right? I mean, that's what it does. It concentrates sunlight in a way that produces an electron flow. So it's a concentrator. But the, one of the technologies you want to do, and I mentioned this to Michael, is really based on um, something you'll have in your body called siderophores, which is an electric, a molecule that basically chelates iron. Basically, it, it sort of sits around, and then when it sees iron, nabs it, because that's its function. It has no other function. And um, in your body, you have lots of different, not siderophores, but you, you have, but very similar, you have molecules whose only function is to identify zinc or nickel or manganese or selenium or chromium and so forth. You know, that's what they do. They're waiting around for these trace elements. And, oh, there's one. Grab it. <laughs> and so does nature and so forth. If you think of toxicity, you think of pollution in the water, you think of it in Superfund sites, you think of it anywhere, it's really things that are dispersed, right? They're not concentrated. If you have an ingot of lead here or that leads on your battery in your car, that's not pollution. You put it in the paint, you put it in the body, you put it in the air, that's pollution, right? What's the difference? Concentration. So what we want to create is really a system using green chemistry to tether designed siderophores, not just natural ones, that basically will identify and then catch, in other words, grab anything they're designed to grab. So if you take this, you know, what do you do with it when it's done? Well, you s it's sent to collectors, it goes someplace, there's people who take it apart, take away the obviously valuable things, you know, a great risk to themselves, by the way. And then, then in some cases, it's just crushed and thrown away. Some cases, it's heated to high temperature. Some cases, I mean, it depends on what it is, okay? That's molecular waste from, elect from electronics, but then there's so many other forms of waste. And so what we're designing is a belt. Imagine a belt, and tethered to it are siderophores that are specifically uh, 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 focused on one compound, let's say hexavalent chromium, you know, you know, which is the Aaron Bronkovich you know, subject, which is common pollutant and very difficult to get out of water. So it's not surprising that you know, when they couldn't figure out how to get out, they just dumped it down back into the water. I mean, it is surprising, but in a way, it wasn't. And, and came back up, <laughs> right? So you can design a siderophore, you can design something so that when you go through the water, it will pick up the hex, you know, and a chromium hex, and then it goes into another bath and releases it. It's catch and release. It's like good fly fishermen, right? It's just catch and release, and then goes back. So it's a continuous thing. It just runs through a sluice of a slurry, of electronic waste, you can run a Superfund site backwards, you can go to a, 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 a secondary wastewater treatment facility that is a sewage treatment plant, pick out all the nitrates, all the phosphorus, all the potash, which are fertilizers, which need to go back to the soil. Those are running out, the last two, right? Phosphate and, and, and potash. So it has myriad uses and so forth, you know, in terms of remediation, in terms of how do we go back into the world and remediate in a way that actually adds value because those things, when they're concentrated, actually have value again. But they have no value when they're, you know, basically crushed into 40 microns and then, you know, then they're polluted or they're just thrown away or cast away. And so it's really about technology. Can we turn the waste stream backwards, basically? You know, 
in a way that's economical, that's very cheap to run, that is, again, room temperature, no heating, no reagents, you know, uh, and that, again, learning from nature, you know, learning, and again, not imitating it, you know, but just saying, good idea, <laughs> you know, like, good thinking. <laughs> Why don't we try it? You know? And so, um, that's what I wanted to sort of share with you this afternoon, I guess, but, you know, um, is really about is a, a, another way to think about technology. I could go on and on. You don't want me to. And um, so I think I'll stop right there. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Paul, are you willing to take a few questions? Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. Why wouldn't you include this in your talk later to the large group? Uh, because I, I did it just now. <laughs> um, it is important. Uh, I don't know. I just because I was going to talk about something else. Yeah, that's a good question. But you can ask a question after I give it. <laughs> Other questions? Robert? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at Occupy Oakland, where violence and what is violence is topic A. Yeah. And I really like your framing. I mean, it's really things that violate the natural order is violence. At least that's what I take the meaning to be. Force. 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 Yeah. I like that. It's helpful. Yeah. It's percolating through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you force a system, an organism, a person, a whole gender, if you yeah. force them that, that to do something it would not do of its own volition, it's violence to me. You're violating that person. You're violating their will. You're violating their consciousness. You're violating their aspirations. You're violating who they are. Yeah. Yes, Tom. You know, life came out of the primordial bubble of, of, of violence. Of, 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 Let's let's deconstruct that a little bit. Absolutely right. From whatever, from what we know, the um, Earth 4.1 billion years ago, pre-life, um, was a hot, toxic stew where nothing living could have survived for a second. Really, <laughs> yeah. And and life emerged from that. Isn't that interesting? How it emerged? It emerged in water, where it was protected, right? Sulfurous vents. Um, we don't really know how. We have lots of theories. There's two theories. One is that it's once in a trillion miracle, you know. And the other theory is that it would do it again and again and again and again, you know. One theory is like a tornado going through a junkyard and making a 747. <laughs> and the other theory is that no matter how it happened, life would emerge, you know. It's an emergent property, right? But but I think the, the important thing to, to understand is the dynamic between living systems, uh, a life itself, and the planet. And if we really 
look at the lithosphere, if we really look at what's down there and so forth, um, much of what is toxic, the cadmium, the mercury, and so was, a, was actually sequestered by life. And then it died, and it made, it died, and kept dying and dying. So in a sense, life cleaned up the planet. And as life cleaned up the planet, more and more diverse forms of life could emerge that are even more sophisticated. So as I will talk about, it, it say, uh, this afternoon, life created the conditions that are, that are conducive to life. And it kept doing so, so it got more and more complex. And what we are doing now is going backwards. So we're going down in there, bringing up what was sequestered over billions of years and putting into the air and water and saying, you know, what's the problem? It's a big problem because we're running evolution backwards.